0: Dan and I have joked many times about when we graduated from Creighton, we never thought we'd be considering treatment for the pelvic floor and the coccyx. However, now it's one of the things I wish I learned more about early in my professional career. Recognizing signs of pelvic floor dysfunction has been huge in helping patients get to the right provider. One of the things I've not been that well versed in is endometriosis. Stay tuned today to learn more about a condition that impacts roughly one out of every 10 women of childbearing age that are coming through your clinic doors right now.
1: Welcome to Therapists in Motion Podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy.
0: Welcome back to the Therapist in Motion Podcast. This is Paul. I am joined today by my colleagues Sarah Guyano and Carrie Yeager, two of our excellent pelvic floor therapists here at Spooner. And I'd like to a, uh, send a big welcome back to Dr. Allison Tricande. Thank you for joining us again. We appreciate having you on.
1: Thank you so much for having me back.
0: Now, we just had you for our previous podcast, you know, Who is Your Pelvic Floor Quarterback? Uh, so everyone, if you haven't listened to that, please do go listen. Some great information on there. Uh, but Dr. Shikande, would you give us a brief little reminder of who you are and what your practice is?
2: Sure.
1: Uh, my name is Allison Shikande. I am a physiatrist, otherwise known as a rehab physician. And I founded Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine with my husband, and we treat men and women with chronic pelvic pain and pelvic floor muscle dysfunction.
0: Awesome. And I know one of the things you do a good amount of treatment for is endometriosis, and that is our primary topic for today. And as we were discussing beforehand, you stated that it can often take six to eight years for a woman to receive the appropriate diagnosis of endometriosis when that's something she should be dealing with for a long period of time. So how would you help guide us as physical therapists to recognize signs and symptoms of potential endometriosis and route them to the appropriate uh, specialty practitioner, such as yourself, to hopefully expedite that process?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, endometriosis, it does it affects 10 to 15% of all women of reproductive age. Um, so, really, one in ten, and some studies even say one in nine, so it's fairly common. And it's really 70% of all women with chronic pelvic pain, um, are, have an underlying endometriosis. So it's definitely something for all healthcare providers of pelvic pain to keep in mind. And I would say, you know, we all treat, you know, pain with intercourse, urinary urgency, frequency, constipation, um, bloating, pain with bowel movement, all these things are what we see with the, with pelvic floor muscle dysfunction and pelvic pain. So, and these are what women with endometriosis often present with as well. So, I usually say keep it in the back of your mind if patients really are not responding, uh, to your treatment, um, as most patients would. Um, as we all know, you know, what, what we do um with pelvic floor PT and then what we do at public rehabilitation medicine um with our injection protocol really works. Patients really the muscles should release and the nerves should get less inflamed. Um and if they're not responding, we really have a high suspicion that there's something else going on and um, maybe something that's fighting that inflammation process around the nerves and fighting that muscle con- continuous chronic guarding of the pelvic floor and then you can send to a specialist to see what's going on.
3: What would be your first line or line of approach if you've you know you've done your protocol and you're suspicious that something else is going on you know do you have a process by which you go by or is it, I mean obviously it's going to be patient dependent but what would be your next
1: um, 100 yeah line 100%. Of So a lot of it actually is a clinical diagnosis for endometriosis based on history. Um, clearly, um, w- given that we see a lot of, as we had just talked about, intercourse pain and urgency of the bladder and bowel issues, that would be clearly something that we would note as having high suspicion. And also, Patients who are not responding to the treatment, as we said. Um, also a family history. We ask a lot about patients' family history of any endometriosis or if they know their, you know, mom or aunt or grandma had a, um, needed some gynecological surgery for pelvic pain because quite often, you know, it's a diagnosis that's challenging to make because it's a silent disease process. So they just know that someone had a hysterectomy or had pelvic pain. A history of infertility is very common for endometriosis. So, endometriosis can present with pain and infer- infertility. So, we always ask about infertility. Um, and also, a history of other autoimmune diseases tips us off to think, ooh, there may be underlying endometriosis. Um, there is some thought in the medical world that one of the contributing factors to Developing endometriosis is some sort of autoimmune process. So quite often our patients may have, you know, vitiligo or Hashimoto's thyroid, things, things that can contribute to an autoimmune. So we ask that as well. And then also ask a lot about their history with their periods. You know, how did you have painful periods? And quite often nowadays patients have been on birth control. So, uh, from an early age. So sometimes, uh, the, the, estrogen-dependent disease process of endometriosis is suppressed until they have to come off birth, birth control, commonly to try and get pregnant. So that's often times when, know, yeah, I was doing great, and then I, you know, I stopped my birth control, and, you know, these symptoms came. So a lot of it's really about the history, the menstrual history, the family history, um, and just not responding, non-responders, <laughs> um, uh, because that, the way endometriosis is, it's just this systemic pro-inflammatory disease process, but it particularly deposits these pro-inflammatory um, cytokines around the nerve. So it's challenging to really calm down that inflammation in the central
2: and peripheral sensitization in patients with endometriosis. So let's say you have a patient that you have come to the clu- conclusion that you think the endometriosis might be a contributing factor in their ongoing symptoms. What would be the next step or treatment process for them?
1: Yeah, like, so when you first get them, I mean, if, if pelvic floor physical therapy, uh, if pelvic floor physical therapists referred them, um, we would do our, our standard, um, protocol where we're treating external ultrasound guided trigger points and nerve blocks with treating the peripheral nerves as well as talking about central sensitization with either sometimes some, nerve medications and or medication and cognitive behavioral therapy and diaphragmatic breathing um, and see how they do. And if they respond, we leave them. Um, And if they don't, that's when we say, okay, um, we'll do often an MRI pelvis with contrast. Often endometriosis does not show up on the MRI, which is again why it's been such a problem in the world it's just a very challenging disease process to diagnose but um, sometimes it, it, it does show up on the MRI of the pelvis if it's what we call a chocolate cyst or otherwise known as an endometrioma that would show up sometimes something called adenomyosis where there's basically the similar process going on within the uterus can show up and and adenomyosis and endometriosis often come together so that's another way to say, ooh, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And sometimes the infiltrating disease uh, process of endo can show up on certain, you know, high-quality MRIs. So we would do an MRI because usually by by the by that time the gynecologist has already gotten an ultrasound, um, transvaginal uh, ultrasound has already been done. <clears throat> so we would get the MRI and then we would send to our surgical counterparts for an evaluation. Uh, the key is. You really want to uh, work with a, a surgeon who is really trained in excising endo rather than ablating it only because the excision process really gets underneath the lesions and really removes them from the body nicely. Uh, so that's, that can be a challenge is trying to find a surgeon who really is highly trained in this specific disease process. And quite often it takes extra training or fellowship to really you know, be able to take care of these sometimes complicated patients, as, as it can involve the bowel, the bladder, right, and sometimes even leave the pelvis. So send so attend there and then, um, and then see them post-operatively and see how they're doing.
0: So post-operatively, uh, what then is the continued follow-up? Is further therapy recommended for this individual? What, what are you looking at as far as continued signs and symptoms and long-term management that comes correlated with this condition?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and there is such a, a spectrum of this disease. You know, it, it it really really depends on you know the 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 significant um, uh, of the lesions. So a lot of times it it you know it's a lot of lifestyle modifications. We discuss a lot of uh, nutrition. So with our endometriosis patients, increasing greens such as kale and broccoli um uh, can help decrease the amount of estrogen in your body because it's an estrogen-dependent disease process. We talk a lot about the anti-inflammatory diet. Um, we see how they're doing in terms of after they heal from surgery, uh, their muscles and nerves, and how are they? You know, are they still inflamed? Do they need more treatment or are they okay? Um, quite often, they do need uh, um, at least public floor physical therapy post-op um, as well as, you know, Continuing to calm down that central nervous system, which can really upregulate the, the nerve pain. Um, so, so there is a lot of lifestyle modifications that, that we do talk about. But yeah, I mean, generally, you know, if they need more treatment, we can do it. And they typically respond very well post-operatively to the PT and injection protocol because now the endo is not fighting us anymore, right? Um, and then we, we see them as needed and we'd have them kind of keep going on with their life and hopefully having intercourse again and, um, being able to have, have children if they want to and go to work and function, and um, that's, the, that's the ideal situation. I, I think the key is to, to early early referral, early diagnosis, to really not only preserve fertility but just really prevent disease progression and mitigate the, the chronic pain cycle from ever developing. So I think the challenge is that delay in diagnosis that occurs. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge.
3: Do you often get pushback from patients or have you found things to be successful in having those conversations with them regarding lifestyle modifications, particularly diet or um, you know even some of that cognitive behavioral therapy, talking with a psychotherapist, that type of thing? Do you have any recommendations for us when we're having these conversations with patients? Because I know that sometimes can be a difficult barrier for us. Is, you know, these patients walk in, they expect that the surgery helps, you know, why aren't they better yet? They're, they're doing their pelvic PT, but sometimes not buying into some of the other changes that need to be made.
1: Yeah, no, it, I, I agree. Um, I, I think a lot of it, it uh, the time that we spend um, at Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine, it, we try to spend time just on pain education. Um, as it is, it can be overwhelming and a lot for patients. So we, we try to explain to them why we're, why we're asking them to do that and really just explaining that there are real changes that go on in the central nervous system, in, in the brain and spinal cord, when you've been suffering so long from this pelvic pain and we need to reverse those changes. So that's what we're trying to do, with what we're asking you to do. So what's nice about the nervous system is there's something called neuroplasticity, so um, your, your nervous system can change in both positive and negative directions. So it, it, that, which is a good thing. So it can heal, but but in order to heal, we need to kind of reset and retrain and downregulate, and we just try to educate on that that it is possible. But this is, you know, how how we can help you get there. Um, I think it is, you know, easier to get people to buy in. Once we, if they, if postoperatively they have some residual symptoms, which is not uncommon, and that's okay. Once we kind of do our our part with our with our pelvic floor physical therapy, our injections, and any nerve medications or muscle relaxers temporarily during our kind of uh, six to twelve week protocol, and get them in a much better place, then they'll say, "Okay, I feel a lot better. <laughs> so I see that I trust you. And now, how do I continue to feel better?" So then it's like, okay, well, let's talk about nutrition. I think, you know, let's bring in the cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, because some of those changes are a lot more lifestyle and a little more subtle. They don't feel it so fast. So I think once you get them in a much better place, both pain-wise and also functioning-wise, right? They're not waking up five times a night to urinate or having um, discomfort with bowel movements or not being able to have intercourse. Um, then they, they really say, okay, I'm feeling great. Now I want to maintain this. So that's, that's kind of when we bring it in. Here's an a, amazing home yoga program. You know, let's talk nutrition and, you know, let's get to meditating or, and or t- doing some cognitive behavioral therapy. But, but that is why we did start our retrain your brain course because we really needed help <laughs> from a pain psychologist to really help just talk about pain science and talk about meditation and, and muscle relaxation techniques in a group way, in a group class, where patients realize they're not alone and um, that doing this uh, can really help uh, long-term if they can really learn to do it on their own.
0: Now, I'm sure there's a great patient dependency on what I'm going to ask here, but Understanding that this is often a condition that goes a long time before diagnosis, what have you seen in your experience as far as time frame it takes to re-educate the neural system to function appropriately, considering this has probably been a chronic process as you've kind of talked about before?
1: Yeah, and I think it all it comes down to their chronicity of symptoms. If, if we, The earlier we get them, the easier it is to retrain their, their nervous system and get the nerves talking to the muscles again. Um, so it really just depends on on how long it's been in going on. Honestly, it's it seems as simple as that. So so yeah, I mean if it's been going on for you know more than ten years, it's going to take you know longer you know than someone who it's been going on for you know five to five to six years. Um, and then obviously six months to a year, gosh, then you're really excited because they're going to do really well if you if you can catch patients early. I think the whole, um, the, you know, educating and raising awareness that we're all doing among patient populations and um, healthcare practitioners who, who see these patients, it really is going to make a big difference uh, in basically shortening the pain cycle. And really, I think overall just preventing patients from going into that vicious chronic pain cycle. Uh, it's possible if we can just really raise awareness. Uh, not only about endometriosis, but pelvic pain in general, and that there are treatments out there. So it's pelvic floor physical therapy and and, uh, physiatrists and uh, gynecologists who really specialize in this and can help patients get better.
3: So we, you know, here in Phoenix at least, um, a lot of our patients that come in with chronic pelvic pain, um, some of the docs here in town, their, their standard protocol is becoming regular Botox injections every three months. And for some it it works um, well, but for others, I just find that the patients are just getting caught on this endless spiral of needing Botox every few months. And I guess I just was curious, um, is this something that you're seeing more of now or, you know, what are your thoughts on this treatment plan?
1: yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the newest uh, aCOG, who is the um, governmental society for uh, in charge of uh, OBGYNs, um uh, the newest ACOG bulletin for chronic public pain management suggested that Botox really does not have any data behind it, so it's really not the option for these patients. I think, you know, the way we practice at pelvic rehabilitation medicine is we're really, other than our treatment protocol that's unique, it's really that we're trying to always find the underlying primary pain generator. So we're trying to understand why each patient got to where they did, usually it's a couple reasons, not just one, but even if it's three, we're addressing all three. Um, and I think it's, it's a better... We believe that's a better way to practice. So if we have a high suspicion it is endo, rather than just Botox them, we prefer to have a proper excision and then we do our... PT, with our injection protocol, which is more of a functional restorative approach, letting the body heal it's, itself, really. Um, the, the hesitation on our end with Botox is it can cause weakness. And uh, we don't want our pelvic floor muscles or external rotators of our hip to be weak, because we need to support not only the, all the organs, right, of the pelvic floor, but also the hips, sacroiliac joint, lumbar, sacral spine, and pubic symphysis. So we, we, we are all about getting that neuromuscular reeducation and getting the lift of not only the pelvic floor but those hip baby doctors back. So that's the challenge with botox. It has many great things but that would be the main challenge is the weakness that it causes. So so yeah, if we ever have used it it's it's not often and you know this is what we do all day every day, it's very rare. It would be more for uh, us sending more to colorectal sometimes to do it around the the sphincter colorectal surgeon so so yeah i mean it, and if you do botox i think less is more because the, the risk of weakness and side effects right of um go up with the more you the higher the dosage mm-hmm. so so yeah conceptually overall we'd rather just find the, the reason whatever it is if it's fibroids or endo or whatever the patient's reason is we and we, we find it and then we we re-coordinate the muscles and nerves and get them functioning and strong and um rather than use a lot of Botox.
2: Awesome. I wanted to go back to where you kind of talked about earlier, if someone has a history of like autoimmune issues, do you find it important to utilize uh, like endocrinologists that a patient can work with? And if so, like do you want a specific type of endocrinologist kind of, is there more to some of those other hormonal things to be managed to help with this?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, uh, as The hormonal aspect uh, is typically managed in our world by the gynecologist. And sometimes certain gynecologists have an interest in surgery and others in the hormonal. So sometimes we're using two different gynecologists um, to help manage the hormonal component of endometriosis. But, you know, I, it is, a, again, a complicated systemic, um, inflammatory disease process that, you know, definitely affects the HPA axis, the hypo- hypotomic pituitary axis and the hormones. And I do think addressing them is important. So we, we don't do it ourselves. We do work with specialists in that area, but we don't, we don't ignore that component at all. For sure, it is important to address the hormones as well as the muscles and the nerves. So you need to address it all. And um, for endocrinologists, Not so much. What we'll do a lot is work with a rheumatologist to to rule out autoimmune disorders and or sometimes we'll also work with either functional medicine physicians or integrative medicine physicians um, as well. We would start off with a rheumatologist and then if we need to, we'll move on to either functional medicine or integrative for that autoimmune inflammatory component.
2: That's, That's awesome and I can appreciate that too because I feel like those... As we're learning more and more about the importance of whole body wellness, functional medicine is becoming way more accessible and there's more options out there. So it's good to know that those are the kind of docs that we can utilize too.
1: Yeah, and several of our physicians who are physiatrists have fellowships in integrative medicine, which I think has been fantastic addition. So we're having them give talks to everybody, try to teach us. But, yeah, it really is – it's, it's something that we, we really see a lot of and um, try to apply to our treatment protocols quite often.
3: I, my last question kind of piggybacks off this, but as for physical therapists, do you have any advice or recommendations on when we're trying to get out there and, and create our kind of community and network of providers that we can work together with as a team? I guess, do you have any recommendations for us in terms of, you know, who are the good ones to have on our team? Who do we want to make sure or some of the conversations that we need to be having on our end to make sure we can build this strong network?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great start. You know, the, the communicating with, with anyone who you're working with is just so important in our world, you know. So that, that, that I think, is just wanting to have either pick up the phone and then exchange emails and just really talk about these patients is, is so important to getting the, getting them better so they're not kind of being treated in this silo that can happen nowadays in, in medicine. So I think just the, the idea that you're even considering it is a great start. So, I you know, a lot of times it just depends on, you know, what we're looking for. I think, as we had mentioned prior, the pelvic palp- you know, the pelvic physiatry world is growing, so hopefully we'll be in a, an option for you soon. Gynecology is probably a popular option for your females and urology as well as GI. But yeah, just really educating the, the other disciplines on, you know, what pelvic floor physical therapy can bring to their patients. Just having them understand how, how, you know, once the organs are worked up and and everything on their end is, is done as, as, as far as they can go. That, you know, getting them to you and evaluating the, the muscles, the nerves, and the joints of the pelvis, as well as even beyond the pelvis, is um, a, a great next step for them.
3: Great, thanks.
0: Well, Dr. Shikande, I just want to say thank you so much. I, we absolutely love hearing about the multidisciplinary approach that you utilize and how you really get down to the root cause and then retrain things as well. So there's a longevity to the improvement you're providing that, that really speaks so well to us. And it's just awesome to hear that, you know, over at Public Rehabilitation Medicine, you are pushing that forward. And then thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us so we can help recognize individuals and route them to the right professional like yourself so we can have this team approach and really get the right care. So thank you so much. It's been a a joy listening to your expertise and your thoughts. And I just want to have a chance to say is there anything you'd like to uh, finish up with or any final thoughts you have for us?
1: Sure. Yeah, we are uh, co-investigators on something called the ROSE trial. Research outsmart endometriosis, and essentially what we're trying to do is find a diagnostic for endometriosis, really by analyzing patients' um, their menstrual effluent, and we ask patients to collect it on a pad. It's 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 basically a a process where if you're interested, um, you can go to our website, and the Rose trial is there and. You will be sent a kit and we're looking for any, all patients qualify. Anyone who's, you know, has a diagnosis of endometriosis or considering a diagnostic lab to diagnose it or just a normal healthy control. But really the more the merrier to really, um, you know, this, these patients are underdiagnosed, undertreated and just tossed around the system. So I just think we can all do our part and, um, help. Help find a diagnostic for a silent disease process that's very prevalent in the
0: world. That's awesome. So you know, that's the ROSE trial. And you said there's information on your website at pelvicrehabilitation.com, correct?
1: Correct. Pelvicrehabilitation.com. And you'll see the ROSE trial on there. So I would encourage people to, to sign up and and help.
0: Yes, please do, everyone. You know, we want to help push this information forward. and Like you said, reach individuals that, that need this care and aren't receiving it. Uh, in a timely fashion so again thank you so much Dr. Shikande and as always if anyone has any questions please reach out to us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com thanks for listening
2: thank you thank
1: thank you. you thanks so much guys thank you for having me